Hello, Legends. Before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released. It's called Crime at Bedtime. And as the name suggests, it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday, but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away. So go check it out. It's called Crime at Bedtime. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And then you remember, your mind remembers what it, mean, what, it, what it felt like to be kind of in a community or to be in a neighborhood, to see cars, you know. I, I remember I used to say this all the time. Well, if they're going to have me in here for something I, I didn't do, then I might, I might as well make it worth it. But that boy shouldn't be in jail. It's too many things to doubt on that case. It's too much. She went and got the truck out without permission, had it washed, cleaned, whatever, and sold it the next day. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. This is the second instalment of part six and the final part of my chat for now with Everisto Salas Jr., the man convicted of murder at just 15 now in his 40s, with less than three years to go on a 30-year sentence. Junior continues to fight to clear his name. Of course, as we know, Junior is fighting to clear his name and get an early release. However, if that doesn't eventuate, he does have less than three years remaining on his sentence. Incarcerated at 15 years old, Junior has missed out on an incredible amount while he's been imprisoned. When he was convicted, the internet was only just starting to make its way into our homes. There was no such thing as an iPhone. The iPod hadn't even been released. No social media, no emails, Skype, or podcasts. Junior will be coming out to a world that he's not used to. And one day when he called... We spoke about his feelings about being back out in the real world. You may start the conversation now. Hey, buddy. Hey, how you doing, Jay? Good, man. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. How's your day been? Uh, it was pretty good. Uh, when I went to work today, we went and delivered wood all over Spokane, so uh, the city of Spokane, which is pretty big one. It's like the second largest city in Washington State, so we were all up and down the roads, and we went even downtown, kind of went through there, so it was... It was a little strange because I'm not used to uh, not only seeing that, but I, I grew up in a small town, so a big city is, you know, you know, a big surprise for me anyway, but even more now after 20-some years, you know, so. 
Yeah. It was good. Are you, are you nervous about that when you get out, like, you know, trying to adjust? Because, I mean, you've, you've basically spent essentially your entire life from 15 till you're 40. Well, well yeah, um, prior to, to me going on, getting this job and everything, I, was, I had a lot of anxiety over it. I didn't know what to expect. I kind of felt because you, you play up, you know, what it's going to be like when you get out. Sometimes, you know, you get a little too where it's, oh, it's going to be glorious. Another time you get like, oh, it's going to be too hard. You kind of go back and forth, but then when you get out there and you start to, you know, in these kind of, like this job setting when you go out there, the shock of it, you know, you feel that first day, you know, or week or two weeks, and then you remember, your mind remembers what it mean, what it what it felt like to be kind of in a community or to be in a neighborhood, to see cars, you know, to be, you know, kind of the fast pace. I mean, there's there's a lot of things that are different, but there there's small differences that, 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 you know, the cars look different, electric vehicles that, that are really strange to me. They got electric power stations, which I, you know, I've never seen before. Yeah. People on their phones, that kind of stuff. Uh, no pay phones anywhere, because that's what they used to be everywhere. The store names are different besides the, you know, the, the large brand ones. But other than that, I mean, it was, you know, I thought I was going to, I thought I was going to have a lot more anxiety when I went out the first couple of times and it was going to be more of a shock. But after I went out those few times, I got comfortable really fast with it. And the anxiety that uh, that I was feeling about going, you know, getting out and going to places or, or getting, you know, seeing the world, you know, behind or outside of these, these fences kind of went away. And so like today when I, we were actually downtown driving through there, it was amazing to see all that stuff, you know. The sad part is I seen uh, a lot of homeless people, which I didn't really expect. Yeah. But there was massive amount of homeless people, you know. And, and I, there was people, I think, I know drug use was just using it out on the streets, which was strange to me because, you don't in a small community I came from, you don't really see that. And I never really been to any big cities, by Seattle when I was really young, and I don't really remember them. So that kind of stuff was really shocking to me. But other than that, I was... I was all eyes to it, you know, and so it, it kind of alleviates that kind of anxiety that, that I was feeling prior to be given the opportunity to go out there. So like I said, if I was just to be released straight from like a, a medium custody where I was at for about seven years before I came out here, it would have been shocked to the system, you know, and you know, the opportunities that I'm getting now to be out there in the community, to work out there, and to see it, it's, it's, I think it's, it's alleviating that anxiety. I don't feel it as much anymore. Like, I got to learn how to drive. I've never driven a car besides up and down uh, I drove it one time when my mom was too drunk to drive, and I had to drive her to her house, which you know was a town next next to Sunnyside. That's my level of experience when it comes to driving. So I had to learn how to drive. I had to get my I had to get my my, my identification, uh, my driver's license, all those kind of things. That I think is going to be a little. Uh, 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 it's going to test my you know you know my my feelings of kind of integrating back into society. But I get a little nervous about that. But but I have confidence, you know, because like I said, I've been studying all these books I've been trying to prepare my mind by trying to kind of visualize it uh, reading books uh, you know doing these re-entry classes that they had here or they had in the main when I was there and just trying everything I can so like even uh, I always used to do these fake scenarios of uh, okay this is how much I paid for this month these are going to be my cost you know and, yeah. and just going through all the most of what I'm going to need and you know how to build that that kind of stuff really kind of helps you know so Junior is taking it upon himself get ready for his eventual release and life back on the outside. Time and again with the men and women I speak with, they tell me how there is just no system in place to help prepare people for the outside. Prison is simply a warehouse to hold someone for a length of time deemed appropriate by the courts, and then they are sent packing back into society. What happens, in many cases, is those people end up right back 
where they were. Now, I know what a lot of people will be thinking listening to this. These are grown adults that need to take responsibilities for themselves and their actions. And if they want to change, they need to make the choice to do that for themselves. And to that, I wouldn't disagree. But as Junior says, even for those people who want to do that, the prison in some ways stops them and won't allow them to better themselves or to take classes. So what then? Well, that's kind of the one of the beefs I have with prison is that they want you to, you know, to, to kind of reintegrate into society, to, to live as a responsible person, but then they take away all your responsibilities and they won't give them to you. They're like, okay, we want you to live this way. We want you to learn how to, you know, to go out into the world and provide for yourself. But guess what? We're going to provide you all the clothing. Um, even if you don't work or nothing, we'll give you everything you need, three square meals, all those kind of stuff. And then they don't even provide most of the classes that would, would be necessary for you to kind of get there. So in a sense, if you've been in prison as long as I have, you almost feel like you've been living at your parents' house the whole time where you got yeah. really no worries, financial worries at all, which is terrible. I mean, it's, it's funny. That's, that's kind of my beef with, with the education system as well because kids aren't really set up to deal with that stuff. And it's kind of similar. It's, you know, kids are just, you know, given books and stuff and said, oh, you know, learn this information, but they're not actually taught, taught about life skills. And I suppose that's the same within prison. They don't teach you life skills. Okay, this is what you're going to need to set up a bank account. And, you know, you, and, you know those bits and pieces, those everyday things that a lot of people take for granted because they sort of just learn as they go, I suppose. And, and you're just going to be dropped back into society and say, all right, Junior, off we go. You know, good luck with it. And, and by the way, you owe us this money and you're going to pay us one way or oh, another yeah. or – potentially you're going back to prison or we're going to violate you or those kind of things. It's almost a setup for failure. It's like, okay, we don't want you here, but when we, when we make money off you some way, so we're going to bring you back and that kind of stuff. It's just, it's just this weird kind of, don't get me wrong, there's some people that don't care that they, this is prison is their life and that kind of stuff, but I'm definitely not one of them. You know, This is the worst part about the Washington state prison system, and, and it may take place in other, other states. So they don't allow you to take any class that has to do with, you know, like let's say uh, college courses and those kind of things, you know, that the prison provides, uh, computer skills, all these really kind of important classes they have, like where they teach you how to, you know, uh, machine, they have these classes in the main where they teach you how to machine parts. Unless you're under five years, you can't even get into those classes. Yeah, it's the same in Florida as well because so another inmate has the same exact argument. Yeah, it, it, it's horrible. So I've been in prison for going on 27 years now. That 25 years prior to that, even if I wanted to get in those classes, they would not let me. They didn't even care. They're like, oh, whatever. But what I did is I bugged the hell out of them for years. And just nonstop, every every month, I sent them a kite or, or every, every few weeks. And then I would ask my counselors, and I would get a good counselor, and then we would wiggle my way into those classes. I basically just said, I'm, I'm, I'm a juvenile. There's a possibility I'm going to get out because all the laws that are changing. And I used that. My counselor helped me, and they allowed me in. I just kept pushing and pushing. And then what I couldn't get for them, I read books. You know, I got a book on, on how to build your credit. I got all these re-entry books, like five or six of them, of, you know, stories of people that got out, what to worry about, you know, how to budget. All these things I had to provide for myself because I had that anxiety. And, and I knew that, and look, I can, my dad, if I go home, my dad will give me a place. He's offered me, he goes, I got a car for you, one that you can practice how to learn how to drive, and then one you can have. And I told him, I said, no, that I, I appreciate it. But I got to do this on my own. You know, I, I got to learn how to live. You know, I, I, you know and he, he felt kind of bad about it. But I said, look, how about this? I'll buy the car from you once I make enough money to do that. Because I need to be responsible for myself. For 27 years, the state has 
basically handed me meals, and I don't like that. If they had a program where they said, okay, well, we're not going to provide you with much, the basics, but you have to work for everything else. Guess what? I'm going to get up every day. I'm going to work for that because there's honor in that. There's a certain amount of, you know, appreciation when you've gone out there and you've earned that money rather than somebody just coming up to you and say, here you go. It gives you a sense of purpose as well. Like, you know, it's... Exactly, you know. For me, I mean, some people, they enjoy the fact that they don't got to do something. Some of them sleep all day and they're not worried about their future. But these are are the guys that go out, come back, you know, within a month or two. You know, some of these guys have been out seven different times and are back. And it's like, prison is not my life, you know. Of course, inside prisons, there are some jobs available to inmates. Work that they can undertake to occupy their days, learn some new skills, and of course, earn a little bit of money. And when I say little, I mean a little. The maximum amount you make in like a, a correctional industry job is 85 cents an hour. So, well, they give you a dollar seventy an hour, but then they take half of whatever you take on, you know, uh, what they call the cost of incarceration, what they put 10% away to your savings and that kind of stuff. That's a good practice. Yeah, yeah, that one's good. But it's, at the most I made every month was $120. What I did is I budgeted that. What I, and, and so I had this thought, okay, I'm going to save ten to 20000 by the time I get out. And what I'm going to do is forget buying, you know, the luxury, the little store and stuff so you can, you know, like the canteen and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I opted out and just said, okay, I just, I'm going to focus on just $10 a month because they provide you with food. The food's horrible, but, you know, I can, I can eat it. I just, you just, when, once you look at it, it's just sustenance rather than just, you know, something to enjoy, you can kind of get past it. Yeah. <laughs> but so, well, yeah, what I did is I bought one box of ramen, which was like six, seven dollars, two bars of soap. And if I needed deodorant, I'd buy deodorant. The next month, if I needed uh, uh, lotion, I'd buy lotion. And I maintained that for four and a half years. It wasn't easy because everybody else around me, they're getting their you know $50, five, $55 paychecks, which is for a whole month of work, and they're just buying all the store. Mind you, the store is owned by the prison yeah, of course. Or, or correctional industry, so it's just like a, a, a circle. And I always tell them, this is what I tell, tell these guys. I said, look, so they're paying you. You're making basically $200 a month. They're taking half of it. And then you're buying their product. So you're just giving them all the money back. They're, they're getting it back at a yeah. They're getting it back at a profit. It's a yeah. it's a it's a racket. It's a scheme, and they don't even care. They can't discipline themselves. And me, I'm saving everything as much as I can. It took me, it, it, to me in prison. This this was you know to have this amount of money was you know a big thing, especially if you work for it. But for people out there, this is not much money. But for me, it took me four about three and a half years to save on my spendable account, uh, twenty five hundred dollars. But that was four years of work right there, you know, pretty much of only spending uh, maybe $10 a month, $20 sometimes, and then donating here and there. But that made me proud. I could look at that and say, okay, I'm going to build on that, continue. So if I get out this time, I'm going to do this and do that. And I ended up getting that up to about maybe seven, 8000 Wow. You know, over a period of the, the next following years. Just on that 120 a month and not spending it, you know. And then COVID hit. And changed everything, you know. I sent all that money to the family, you know. So, so my sister didn't want to take it. Oh, no, this. And I said, look, it's it's horrible out there right now. You know what I mean? I, I, look, I, I'll find a way to get more money. You know what I mean? I, I'll save up. I'll do all that. I don't need it right now. You guys need it. And so I just pretty much handed it all out. They gave us these stimulus checks, which was strange because they actually gave it to us in prison. I gave all that to my family, too. Yeah. It went all to them, you know. So so now I'm back kind of with I square one and kind of building it back up, you know, slowly but surely. So you hear about prison on the outside, and anyone with a bit of money, or you know, anyone buying too much store or whatever, becomes a target from inside the prison. You know, for other inmates that don't have as much, do, do, does that make you a target to have that money, you know, sitting there? 
Well, since I was a, I was at a lower custody, which is a, I was an MI3, so long-term minimum, the mentality changes. If you're like in a level four prison, so I was in a level three prison, which is a kind of laid back, calm, there's not as much fights, rarely any stabbings, you know, here and there, there's a kind of something happens. Where I was at before, I went maybe two or three years without even seeing a fight, you know what I mean? Yeah, the, right. the worst case is they argue because we have so much to lose in a place like this. So you yeah. get these jobs or you get these programs. Um, some of them get visits with their families, you know, extended family visits and stuff. But in the close custodies, you know, or the, or the you know, the, the supermaxes, there's nothing to lose there. If I had that money there, I would definitely be a target for extortion or those kind of things if yeah. the gang wasn't there to protect me, you know. So, and then I had been down so long, so people know that. They don't really kind of mess with me. Yeah. Even though I try to kind of uh, be more open, I, I mean, some of the things when you come to close custody, you have a certain aura of you that, that you don't really see it. But everybody else does because you've lived in that environment and it's hostile. I mean, I'm real quiet. I don't really. I'm, I'm kind of an introvert. I don't speak much. I kind of stick to myself. That automatically makes people kind of weary of me. You know what I mean? And then knowing that I've been in close custody for 20 years and not in the middle, they get a little weary. So they don't really mess with me in that sense. And then when they do talk to me, they're a little bit surprised because I have a sense of humor. You know what I mean? And yeah. I, you know, I read all these books, and, and then they're like, "Oh, I thought you were just mad all the time." Well, I said, <laughs> no, I just, you know, I just do my time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My whole point is staying out of trouble, so I have to really, you know, when you make that amount of mistakes in the beginning of your sentence, you got to prove to the system or to the administration that you're not, you're not that person anymore. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Another question I get about Junior, being incarcerated at just 15, would mean he hasn't likely had a proper relationship. Well, Junior is in fact a taken man and has a fiancé. Tell me about your fiancé, how you guys met. Uh, we met... Uh... Almost, it's been about four years already that we've been together. We met uh, a little bit, well, a few months after the, the broadcasting of The Wrong Man. She had watched it and was really moved by it, you know, and she has kind of really kind of a, a, 
a big heart for like social justice. And, and in the Netherlands, she used to go to like protests and those kind of things. And she's always there, kind of you know fighting for the disenfranchised, you know, in one form or another. Whether it's either through writing letters or showing up to protests, you know, that's always been a part of her spirit. And so she wrote me a letter and, and explained to me how how horrible it was to kind of see it, you know, and how, how moving it was, you know, and that she explained that she had a two-year-old son and she explained that, that for her it was like I couldn't imagine that happening to my own son. How would I take it as a parent? And, and that's how it started. And then we just kind of grew from there. From um, She's really kind of a deep, intelligent person and her conversations are very enlightening and her compassion for, the, for other people, you know, it, it was really moving to me, you know, and I had that kind of same heart. And we just bonded on so many different levels, you know, and, and, and she's really like well-read. Her mother is a teacher or a professor and used to make her read like when she was a kid, they used to read Plato's Republic and, and Socrates and all these, these philosophers on top of what she always used to read on herself. So, And and I studied that for years just because I enjoyed the wordplay and, and the understanding of the world around us. So that gave us a wealth of things to talk about. And, you know, as we you know got to know each other, we grew in that kind of stuff. And, and, and then I think it was maybe... Uh, maybe a month or two after that, we, we kind of thought that, okay, well, there's something here, something that we need to look into or at least, you know, explore. The, over the time that passed, you know, our relationship grew stronger. And we understood she's a, I mean, as a Dutch citizen, they're kind of different in mentality when it, than Americans because Amer- as Americans, we have kind of a, I, I would say I have like more kind of like a fantasy view of things or, or we're easy or more like, okay, you know, we kind of have more dreamers, I guess, you know. And the Dutch are really direct. At least she, they're straightforward. There's no, like, if, if there's something wrong, they're going to tell you straight out. And I don't know if that's just a European thing or if it's a Dutch thing, but that's how she was. And for me, it was like when we looked at this, she took a really logical look at it. You know, she's like, you have this much time left. If things don't change with it, you know what I mean? We're going to have to go through this and go through that. So we kind of went into it kind of knowing the obstacles that we're going to have to face. Her living in the Netherlands, me living here. Um, I'm hoping that I get out soon, but there's there's no uh, uh, that's that's not written in stone. It, you know, it, it may not happen. And she may we have to be you know long distance relationship. All the things that come with being far away from each other. Not to mention her being a single mother raising a son. My part, I'm going to play in that. So all these things we we spoke about. And like I said, she's real logical. She took at it, looked at it, and kind of understood from the get go that it was going to be very hard. But we grew in our love and we began to kind of just kind of attach each other, become real attached to each other in that kind of way. And like I said, she's a, she's a real compassionate and loves me in a way that I have not been loved other than by, by my father. I mean, she's there for me all the time. I talk to her every day. We struggled, you know, through the, the pandemic together. She was, they were locked in their, 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 I mean, well, stuck in their houses over there in the Netherlands for a number of months. And they were sending us all around different units and putting us in quarantine and it was it was it was mayhem but we pushed through that and she actually came up uh to visit me right before it hit so i think it was it was like a month before they actually shut down her country she flew up here uh, and met my family uh, stayed in sunnyside with my dad and met my sisters that was the first time we met in person we had video visits so we were able to see each other in that kind of way and then i met the little two-year-old who's basically my son i've been raising him for i mean as best i can for a place like this but and she spoke English real fluently. She has a, a slight accent, but it's it's almost unnoticeable. I don't really notice it. And my little boy speaks just Dutch, which is it's you know. But he speaks to me, and then I got all these books and said, "Well, I'm going to learn Dutch, you know." But Dutch is a hard language. Yeah, Dutch, it is. You know? <laughs> and, and so I thought I was speaking great, but every time I would speak to her, she would just crack up and laugh. And I told her one time, I think I was going to say, "You're beautiful." 
And she started laughing. I'm like, what? Did I say it wrong? She goes, you said armpit. What are you trying to say? <laughs> I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and then she kind of corrected me. It was things like that. And I told her, I said, look, I'm the best Dutch speaker there is in, in, in this prison right now. And even my uh, my little boy, you know what I mean? I, I speak to him. He, he comes and he kind of, he's getting old. He's, he's six now, but he, you know, he, he gets on the phone at times and he just tells me, just speaks fluent Dutch. He's just telling me. And then I, I kind of just know a few words, you know, he call on you or I love you, those kind of things. And he understands them. But then she gets on the phone. She goes, your your accent is terrible. And I'm like, I, I, I'm I thinking I'm sounding just like the way you're saying. She's like, no, you're horrible at it, you know, because I guess in, in she's real particular about she wants our son speaking Dutch really clearly. And, and, you know, and she's a perfectionist in that way. So when she hears me, it's just like. It's just horrifying to her, you know what I mean? And I'm like, hey, I'm just trying to do this. And I'm like, man, I need a tutor or something. (laughs) With less than three years to go on his sentence, there is light at the end of what has been an incredibly long and hard journey for Junior. But of course, he's still fighting his conviction and hoping to clear his name and get out sooner. Where are we at with your situation? So I'm in the Court of Appeals right now, which is kind of the second level. Uh, the first level was the the state court, which uh, they pretty much denied all the requests that so we had to appeal to the Court of Appeals, which is the court right above them. We filed our last brief um, on the 22nd. After that, it goes up to the chief judge, and then they set a hearing, then they're going to decide within about six to nine months. I think there's three things they can do. Deny me, just fully to say, well, your issues are not whatever, and just deny it. And then I can appeal to the Supreme Court, court above them. Second, they can vacate my conviction altogether and remand for a new trial. That would basically mean that the case is over, that the state court would have to decide whether they're going to retry me, which there's almost nothing for them to do that, but they could kind of do it, but they, my lawyer said that there's, there's a high probability they won't. So it's pretty much you'd be immediately released, immediate, uh, released after that. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing would be they grant me an evidential hearing, allow me to get a new judge, because that's what we asked for. We asked for a vacation or a vacate, vacating my conviction yep. and remand for a new trial, or grant me an evidential hearing so I can present all this evidence to a judge and then he can rule on the merits right there. And so one of those three things can happen. We're hoping that they'll vacate my conviction altogether. My lawyer said that's the hope, but, you know, the courts might just be like, well, we don't want to go that far, you know, that kind of stuff. And they they might just grant me, you know, an evidential hearing with a new judge. That would be a positive thing, too, but then it would just kind of prolong the process. Yeah, of course. Of us going through. And so the course we'd like is them to vacate my conviction altogether. Then they dismiss the charges against me, and, and I'd be released within a few days of that decision. Just a waiting game. And that's all it's kind of been. Once we had the evidence and we presented it to the to the judges, we had to go through the process, which is is two to three year long process, you know. And that's just the way the courts are set up. And especially if they fight you on it, you know, and then it gets just longer because they can drag their feet. There's all these little legal things that they can do to just drag it out. And that's what they've been doing. My uh, fiance, she sent me a uh, a thing where she wanted kind of to say, uh, you know, have a little word in, you know, without kind of 
because she's kind of like really kind of private and she doesn't really basically she doesn't want the attention taken away from me she just wants to kind of be you know. so if you don't mind I, I could read it to you right now yeah yeah, yeah absolutely uh, love to for sure so this this is the words of the, my fiance right here so more than four years ago I saw the documentary of Evaristo Salas's case and I recognized my son in many ways of the photos that I've seen the scenario of the wrongful conviction it really tugged at my soul and the question came up, what if this was my son serving a life sentence for something he had nothing to do with? In that time that I got to know Evaristo, this question started to play an increasingly important role in my life. The conclusion of this is that there must be some reason for such a severe sentence. After that, I had that pressing question, who is responsible for this wrongful conviction? I've laid awake for hours, days, months, and years thinking about this question. Is the officer, Sergeant Rivard, is he responsible for this? Was the jury misled during the trial? Was perhaps this judge who would have given Evaristo the death penalty if he could have? Perhaps Evaristo's mother who didn't raise him the right way? Or is it perhaps because Evaristo grew up with a working single father who could barely make ends meet or be there for his family as much as he really wanted to? Or was the case purely coincidence, and Evaristo was just unlucky? The answer to these questions of who is responsible for my soulmate's years in prison will remain one of the greatest mysteries of my life, because I don't know who to point at. I'll have to make peace with that someday. I don't want to dwell on the past, and neither does Evaristo. I live every day between hope and fear. The reality of Evaristo it's almost unreal to kind of think of what is taking place with him and how we live each day. Sometimes I wake up, I feel that Evaristo will be magically exonerated. On such a day, I anxiously await a phone call that utters these words. I'm acquitted. Such days give me hope. On the other hand, I feel like a fragile piece of glass that could break into a thousand pieces at any moment. The entire day is a struggle until I can turn off the lights and close the day. Each day that has passed is a day closer to Evaristo Salas' release in one form or another. We have great ideas about what we want to do in the future. We want to travel to different countries, have a modest home, plant our own vegetable garden, and go on short trips to different museums. All in all, normal things. My son will be a teenager himself once Evaristo has finished serving this unjust sentence. Then will we enter a new chapter in our lives. But even then, the question will come up. Again, the same question that has given me countless anxiety attacks and kept me up at night. What if it was my son that had to serve a life sentence for something he had nothing to do with? have one minute remaining. This, for now, is the story of Evaristo Salas Jr. But by no means the end. And we will stay in touch with him to find out how his appeal goes. And I look forward to Skyping with him when he returns home. Evaristo Salas Jr. was convicted as a child for killing an adult. But what happens 
when an adult is convicted of killing a child. I could tell that she wasn't herself because normally she would be running around and laughing and jumping. This particular day, she was she was a little um, slower than usual. She was not, not as active and not as happy as she normally would be. In a first for one minute remaining, we will hear the story of a man whose case has been taken up by proclaimed justice. One of the many organisations across the US that fights to overturn convictions that they believe to be wrong. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.